Hey everybody, it's James Lindsay. You're listening to the New Discourses Podcast. I'm going to start off reading you a very brief piece of a much longer quotation from Karl Marx. He wrote this in the Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts, which he wrote in 1844. I think this uh, work is extremely important to understanding Marx and his philosophy, much more than the Communist Manifesto or Capital, which is controversial, but welcome to the New Discourses podcast. So the quote says, Communism is the riddle of history solved, and it knows itself to be this solution. So while you can look to the manifesto and you can hear Karl Marx say things like that, um, as a matter of fact, uh, that communism can be summarized in a single sentence. This is at least in the second chapter of the Communist Manifesto, and he says that single sentence is abolition of private property. He also, in 1844, so about four years earlier, characterized communism as the riddle of history solved, such that it knows itself to be the solution to the riddle of history. Now, a number of months ago, I wrote an essay on new discourses, and nobody reads, so I always kind of intended to go through this essay as a podcast to talk about the riddle of history. And the title of the essay, if you want to look it up, is The Riddle of History Solved, so the title of the podcast will be something like Solving the Riddle of History. <laughs> See how that works. But before I actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to mostly read through my own essay and add commentary because I want people to get the same ideas uh, in more than one format. But before I do, I want us to listen to our friend, um, Klaus Schwab from the World Economic Forum. And so Klaus, just to set this up, is being interviewed. It looks like he's being interviewed by India Today by... Uh, if I can read this right, Rahul Kanwal, news director, India Today, and AAJTAK, whatever that is. Um, and he's being interviewed at this year's or around this year's Davos meeting, the World Economic Forum meeting that was held this year in 2023. And uh, I'm going to push play. I hope this records well. Um, let's hear what Zeklaus Schwab has to say about uh, what he's thinking. We, we should make here uh, again a, a, let's say, a differentiation. On the one hand, we have uh, state capitalism. On the other hand, we have shareholder or private capitalism. So it's a clash between two systems. I, I believe that um, state capitalism in the short term in the short term provides certain advantages because you can mobilize in a concentrated way a lot of resources to reach a specific objective. But I believe that the future is not state capitalism or shareholder capitalism. The future is what I call stakeholder capitalism which um, is combined with the social responsibility. All right. So that's a Klaus Schwab, stakeholder capitalism. He believes in a stakeholder, i got to make fun of it every time, capitalism that combines the essences of state capitalism and shareholder capitalism. Now, we recognize that state capitalism is not capitalism. State capitalism is probably socialism or communism. We might see it as fascism, depending on who wants to throw down the definitions. These aren't that far apart, really. Um, 
And then shareholder capitalism is, of course, what we have been operating under in the corporate West for, you know, at least over 100 years, where the primary responsibility of corporations becomes to make money for the shareholders in the corporation. So he proposes this new model called the stakeholder capitalism, where what's most relevant is no longer the shareholders or the state apparatus, which has certain advantages in mobilizing large numbers of resources to do evil thing. I mean, things in the world. Now we have this idea that they're this, these people, these stakeholders. And the stakeholders are, are experts. They, they're supposed to be you, right? You have a stake in what happens in society, and they want you to believe that. But in practice, what it turns out is that people like John Kerry and Bill Gates and George Soros and Klaus Schwab and um, Al Gore are stakeholders because they know better than us. They understand things better than we do. They understand how the economy works. They understand the environmental crisis. They understand the hazards and dangers of our future um, and the velocity and all of the issues that they write about in their weird globalist books. And therefore, they have to manage the world as it transitions through this kind of new digital transformation of the world into a new economy or something like this. Okay. So that's the idea. So they're the stakeholders, but what they really mean by that is that there's a representative council of stakeholders who are experts over the various domains, which is a fancy term for technocracy. There are experts. They might talk to some stakeholders. They might not. Stakeholder capitalism, though, is Klaus Schwab's big idea, allegedly, he may have plagiarized it, that he first started writing about in the 1970s or maybe earlier. Certainly 1971 is a pivotal year in this regard, which turns out to be the same year that he created the World Economic Forum, which was called the European Management Forum at the time. It wasn't worldly until later. And I kind of give you this background before I get into this essay, because what I argue in the essay is in fact that what Klaus Schwab just described at Davos this year is what I argued in this essay, which is that following the work, especially of Herbert Marcuse in One Dimensional Man in 1964, particularly the second chapter of that book, um, and maybe the ninth chapter as well, following that, what we end up with is seeing capitalism and socialism not as two enemies, two completely separate opposite uh, paradigms, but rather as two pairs in a dialectical circumstance that can be fused together and made into something different. They can be made into a synthetic whole. If you remember that the dialectic means that you combine opposites by first seeing them as the same in kind, but different in degree, which is by the way, the principle of polarity under hermeticism, which is an ancient esoteric cult religion. If you see Apparent opposites is different in kind, but the same, sorry, the same in kind, but different in degree. And you see capitalism and socialism not as two diametrically opposed um, enemies, but rather diametrically opposed on the same line that separates them or the same circle that has a diameter. In other words, two pieces of the same greater whole, then you can zoom out, think two-dimensionally, as Herbert Marcuse might argue, and see them as something that can be synthesized. So on the one hand, as Klaus was telling us, you have state capitalism, which we associate with socialism. On the other hand, you have shareholder capitalism, which is what people usually call capitalism and not socialism. So you have these two. And so what he sees is there are certain advantages to them 
and that if you were to propose, let's say, a mixture of them, a stakeholder capitalism, stakeholder capitalism, then what you might come out with on the other side is a synthetic combination of capitalism and socialism that solves a riddle of history, which is what the point of this essay was. Long before I wrote this several months ago, let me see if I have a date on it, October 18th, 2022. So three and a half, four months ago, three months before, at least three months before uh, Ziklaus Schwab uh, said these things at Davos this year almost maybe to the date. Okay, so we have this idea, though, that stakeholder capitalism becomes the fusion of some socialism and some capitalism into one new system where you have a council of technocratic elites that represent the stakeholder interests. You have an interest in climate change because if climate changes and things get bad, that affects you. You have a stake in it. So you have a climate change expert who's going to speak on your behalf in terms of climate change, whether you believe in it or not, whether you think it's a risk or not, whether it harms you in the short term or the long term or ruins your life or not. They know the greater good. And what did he say? Well, we're going to combine the advantages of state capitalism, which is socialism with or fascism, whichever you like, with shareholder capitalism to create stakeholder capitalism, which combines in the idea of social responsibility or social justice, which is the end point of socialism, communism. And so in this essay, uh, I kind of wanted to make this case that what Herbert Marcuse did was change the frame back in 1964 in this especially second but also ninth chapter of One Dimensional Man, he changed the frame. So we're not looking at capitalism and socialism as enemies, but rather as a diametrically opposed pair in the same dynamic. And that if you can figure out how to put them together, you can solve certain problems. Communism or socialism has a problem called the problem of production. Namely, it can't produce and distribute goods because nobody wants to work. Capitalism has no problem producing, but it has all these excesses. It's not, as it turns out, sustainable is the kind of problem word there. And um, in the second chapter of One Dimensional Man, Herbert Marcuse lays out a case that these two are actually a dialectical pair that if you could somehow figure out how to put them together, you could solve the problem. You could, in fact, solve, I guess, the riddle of history, one might say. Or Karl Marx might say, because communism, properly understood and successful, is the riddle of history solved and it knows itself to be this solution. That's what he said in the Economic and Philosophic Manuscript of 1844. That's the case that uh, Marcuse is making in One Dimensional Man, is that if you could somehow get socialism, he says this also, by the way, in Essay on Liberation in 1969, I think he glazes on it or glazes across it in Repressive Tolerance in 65. I'd have to reread it to remember. This is a big theme for Marcuse as a point. And so what he's saying is that if you could somehow get the productivity or most of, some of, not quite all of, the productivity of capitalism and move it into the socialist model and make it work, then you'd have a system that genuinely, truly liberates people, frees them from the toil of labor, frees them from the estrangement and alienation of capitalism, and sets us on the path to hit what what, what Marcuse openly de- described as utopian possibilities for 
the future of humanity. So I'm just going to kind of dive into the essay instead of just rambling now. It says, I said, as you can see, according to Karl Marx, communism true and proper is the self-conscious solution to the, quote, riddle of history. Of course, in reality, where things have to work, there is no riddle of history. The, quote, riddle of history Marx referred to is, in fact, dialectical anthroposophy, which I probably didn't say right, which is a really fancy word for man-centered heretical nonsense. Thus, any claim upon a solution to that riddle is pure pretense and dangerous hubris. The true solution to the riddle of history, if we should even allow such a phrase, must begin with the outright rejection of communism and the dialectical framing in which the riddle is posed in the first place, including the underlying assumption that history has a purpose, and thus a riddle to be solved. So I'm just out, out from the beginning just basically saying, listen, Karl Marx said there's a riddle to history. We can figure out the riddle to history. We can solve it. We can implement it. That solution is called communism, and it knows itself to be a solution. And I'm saying, no, 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 there's no, his, there's no riddle to history. This is dialectical nonsense, and this is not how we should think about the issue at all. But if there were such a thing as a riddle of history, the first thing it would do is reject communism because it's a catastrophe. It wouldn't try to integrate communism. I said Karl Marx did not reject that assumption, however, he began with it. And that's why I think the economic philosophic manuscripts from 1844, sometimes called the Paris Manuscripts, sometimes called the Manuscripts of 1844, from Marx are so important, among a few other reasons. That's where he really lays out, kind of in the first really clean and systematic way, what he's thinking. It precedes the Holy Family. It's after his critique of Hegel's philosophy of the right, which is where you get the opium of the masses line, which is also, I think, at least in the beginning part, very important. But this is where Marxism really gets its shape and its form. The rest of his, in my opinion, the rest of Marx's career was him trying to justify communism as a solution to the riddle of history. But the real philosophy, the real underlying philosophical content was laid out in uh, economic philosophic manuscript. I said, what to Marx was the riddle of history solved other than just to say, quote, communism as described above? Well, like I was saying in our little preamble, I said, it's socialism that can produce, to borrow from Marcuse's words, it's socialism that can, quote, deliver the goods, one might say. Productive socialism. I'm going to use that as a term, so hang on to that. Productive socialism that allows man to escape toil, exploitation, suffering, and work, which arrives when man is finally freed from the existence of private property and thus the division of labor, which was his fall. And I mean that in the biblical sense. This fall of man was the division of labor in Marxist religious thinking. This is the pathway to the, quote, transcendence of private property as human self-estrangement as Marx had it. The problem is that, quote, productive socialism is a functional oxymoron. Now, let me pause before I continue, because I want you to keep in mind productive socialism. That's really what we're going to hammer on here, because productive socialism, I'm going to make the case for, is the correct name for stakeholder capitalism. It's not a capitalism at all. It is productive socialism. But this transcendence of private property is human self-estrangement is actually the first sentence, or part of the first sentence, I should say of the same paragraph that ends in the Riddle of History sentence in EPM, Economic Philosophic Manuscript, okay? He says, communism is the transcendence of private property as human self-estrangement is what they're going for, okay? So human is, humanity is estranging itself from itself. That's Marx's hypothesis. How is it doing it? 
through private property, the existence of private property. And so if we're going to get past that, we have to transcend private property. We can't just abolish private property. And in fact, what we really need to do is what usually gets translated as sublate private property, which is Aufheben in German. We have to abolish it or annul it or nullify it, but at the same time keeping its essence and transforming it into something that we understand on a higher level. So the transcendence of private property as human self-estrangement is what communism means, and that's the beginning of the paragraph that ends with communism is the riddle of history solved, and it knows itself to be this solution. Okay, so what I'm claiming is that Klaus Schwab and Karl Marx agree that the riddle of history can be solved in something that would be rightly called productive socialism. Marx called it communism or true communism as opposed to crude communism, which is just the hating of private property, by the way. But Klaus Schwab calls it a stakeholder capitalism. I said the history of the 20th century is basically the story of productive socialism not existing either in reality or in actuality. And these are different to Marxists. Let me pause on that because this is a big thing in Hegel. There's a difference in a dialectical frame and a not dialectical frame when we talk about things that are real. Reality is what actually is. It's what's really there. It's actually true. Actuality is that which has been made to come into existence. They're not the same thing. Something that has been actualized exists in actuality. So they're not quite the same. So when I say the history of the 20th century is basically the story of productive socialism not existing, either in reality or actuality, what I mean is every attempt to do communism or make productive socialism failed, failed miserably, killed tens of millions of people at a crack. Trying to force socialism to be productive is a functional oxymoron. That's what I'm saying. What I said is so far all bids to create a productive socialism have fallen flat on their faces universally after starving and murdering people by the millions in the pretense of having finally got it right. And of course, I'm thinking of the Soviet Union. I'm thinking of Cambodia with the Khmer Rouge. I'm thinking of China as Mao took power and the CCP took over. And so I add a little snarky comment here. All bids to create productive socialism have fallen flat on their faces universally after starving or murder and murdering people by the millions in the pretense of having finally got it right, or at least good enough for government work, because that turns out to be what the problem is, is government work, killing people. The reason is straightforward. History is not a riddle in the dialectic in which it is framed as such is bogus. In fact, it's hermetic wizardry. And ultimately, it's a power grab for people who do not know how to wield power. So there are people, this is, the pre this is the ultimate premise of Marxism. There are people who are very discontented with the way the world works. They think they know how the world should, actually more accurately, shouldn't work. They know all the problems with the world. And so they should have power and be put into power to stop all the bad problems in the world. That's basically the idea. And it's a giant power grab. All the theory, all the tools, all the praxis are all just tools of power grabbing so that people who actually don't know how to wield power and don't know why they can't wield power and don't know how to make their way to power legitimately can obtain that power illegitimately. I said, we therefore have every reason to expect the newest, quote, solution to the, quote, riddle of history, 
which believes that it knows itself to be that solution, is going to fail and do a ton of avoidable damage, so long as we keep giving it any countenance. Utter failure, though, has never slowed a communist down. So they're doing what they always do when confronted with failure, keeping their bogus product the same while giving its branding a facelift. The fancy newfangled, quote, solution to the non-existent, quote, riddle of history, therefore now tends to go by the name, quote, sustainability, or more specifically, quote, sustainable capitalism. Now I want you to put a bookmark in that. We've got productive socialism, and now I've got sustainable capitalism. What I want you to understand is that those two concepts are the transformations of socialism and capitalism into the same thing. Okay, that's where this essay is going to go. That productive socialism and sustainable capitalism are the same thing. They're the same failure. And they're the thing that Herbert Marcuse was calling for that Klaus Schwab we just heard from is trying to actualize under the brand name stakeholder capitalism or sometimes literally sustainable capitalism. His sustainable and inclusive future, which has the social responsibilities. In sustainable capitalism, I tell you, the economy will be, quote, circular. Think about that for a minute. It's a society that eats its own waste or bugs. In, a, in sustainable capitalism, the economy will be, quote, circular and, quote, you will own nothing and you will be happy. Doesn't that sound like transcending private property as human self-estrangement? You'll be happy. You're not self-estranged anymore. You're not miserable. You've broken out of the Gnostic prison created by the producers. You don't own anything because you don't need to own anything because you've transcended private property. We've heard this kind of talk before, I said, always from the mouths of the emissaries of Mordor. It'll be great. A, quote, better future that's, quote, both sustainable and inclusive. Our systems will be, quote, more resilient, and we won't waste so much we'll be, because we'll be reusing most of our waste. Didn't you see that video of Bill Gates smiling as he drank a glass of water pressed out of human sewage? We'll eat far less meat and, one presumes, far more soy and bugs. Western values like individual liberty and the ownership of private property will hit their breaking points and be abolished. And the United States will no longer be the world's superpower because room has to be made for China and a new mirror image supranational West governed by the United Nations. Most importantly, this whole scam will be, quote, sustainable for the planet we live on the people we live among, and even most, and even more most importantly, for the regime that administers it for us. That's who really gets to be sustainable, is the regime. And that's the rub, too. We'll need someone to administer this unnatural, nonsensical, expensive crap for as long as it lasts, because, and that Marx was wrong about us being a, quote, species being who has forgotten his true nature, Nobody is going to sign up for or maintain this disaster for themselves willingly, I should add to my own commentary, if they understand what they're signing up for. The whole thing is to trick us into thinking sustainable, inclusive, circular economy, stakeholder, capitalism are all good things. Okay? That's the game, is to trick us into that so that we will accept this disaster willingly. Now let me pause about this paragraph, because if you don't know what I'm actually doing in this paragraph... I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. I need you to get the reference. There was a video in 2016 when the World Economic Forum was on its heyday. It was on its big ascent. Why? Because it was about to get Trudeau. It was about to get Hillary Clinton. It was on the way. They went gangbusters in 2016. Whoops, Donald Trump. <laughs> Whoops, Donald Trump. 
And they put out this video. You've seen it. You will own nothing and you'll be happy, right? You've seen that one. Well, it turns out they list eight features of the future by 2030 or some year, 2030, I think. And they list a bunch of things. And actually what this paragraph is, is a bunch of those things, right? It'll be great. It'll be a better future that's sustainable and inclusive. Our systems will be more resilient. We won't waste so much because we'll be reusing most of our waste. Is that out of the video? We'll eat far less meat. That's in the video. They don't mention far more soy and bugs, but that's where they've shown us they're going. This is out of the video. Western values like individual liberty and the ownership of property rights. They don't say that part though. Or private property, sorry. They just say Western values will hit their breaking points. That's what they say in the video. I've fleshed it out for you. Western values like individual liberty and the ownership of private property will hit their breaking points and be abolished. They go on in the video to say, and the United States will no longer be the world's superpower. I add some commentary because room has to be made for China and a new mirror image supranational West governed by the United Nations. Okay, and this is going to be sustainable for the planet and the people. But like I say, most importantly for the regime. So this is actually, this paragraph is actually me riffing off of that famous you will own nothing and be happy video. And I encourage you to remember you will own nothing and you'll be happy sounds an awful lot like the transcendence of private property as human self-estrangement from Marx in 1844. We just have Klaus Schwab putting it out now in, say, 2016. I'm going to tell you, though, Lenin understood this. That was the point of his vanguard strategy, which he located in the Bolshevik party. Thanks to the need to... What did he understand? Let me back up because there's a this there. That's a need six... We'll need someone, in the end of the previous paragraph, we will need someone to administer this unnatural, nonsensical, expensive crap for as long as it lasts. That's the World Economic Forum, by the way, and the United Nations in partnership with them. In the International Monetary Fund, probably Council for Foreign Relations. We could probably name a lot of entities. They're going, just stakeholders, the stakeholders are going to administer this unnatural, nonsensical, expensive crap for as long as it lasts, Okay. I said Lenin understood this. People aren't going to accept it. You have to administer it. You need a vanguard. You need party elites who understand the theory and force it upon the people until by what Marx called the inversion of praxis, they accept it by transforming themselves at the level of who they are. Their fundamental human nature has to change. And when they become the new Soviet man, then they will have uh, possibly transformed themselves in a way to accept the socialist model but not before that. So what you have to do is you have to administer them through it. You have to make them live through it till they see the light and they accept it. Herbert Marcuse echoes Lenin on this point when he writes in uh, Essay on Liberation, the first chapter is a biological foundation for socialism. And he says that if you want to get people ready for socialism to achieve these new ends, these new liberated future or whatever, that we have to change man at the level of his vital needs. We have to change man at the very level of his biology, which in a footnote, he tells you he doesn't literally mean biology. It sounds like when I actually read that, I don't think he literally means biology, although he might. You can't, why use that word when you don't have to? It seems like what he actually means is one's psychological capacity to handle and interpret reality. But Lenin understood this, I said. This was the point of the vanguard strategy, which he located in the Bolshevik party. Thanks to the need to administer the proposed solution to the riddle of history, you may have heard of sustainable capitalism referred to by another name. Stakeholder capitalism. That's adorable. Lenin would smile. That's what I wrote. Administration of the sustainable capitalism has to be done by a council of expert stakeholders who, in their greater wisdom and perspicacity, make sure all the real stakeholders' stakes, that's you, 
are accounted for after being passed through the supremely informed and equitable filter of their claim to expertise. That's the Gnostic technocracy part where they get to be the philosopher kings who interpret the data of the world and what you think you want because they know your wants better than you do. They don't want you to be voting against your own interest, for example, or buying against your own interest or engaging in economic behavior against your own interests. So they're going to interpret the world for you in terms of your interests, which they know and you don't because they're Gnostics and you're not. And if you were, you'd be one of them because that's how you become a Gnostic in this religion is you accept their doctrine. And then you could become this stakeholder. Administration, I said, of this sustainable capitalism has to be done by a council of expert stakeholders who in their greater wisdom and purposecacity make sure that all the real stakeholder stakes are accounted for after being passed through the supremely informed and equitable filter of their, I'll add the word Gnostic, claim to expertise. That's why it was called the Soviet Union. Since I started with Lenin in this paragraph, that's why it was called the Soviet Union, don't you know? The Russian word for the deciding council is Soviet, as it gets rendered in English. I can't quite say it right. So the stakeholders council, which I wrote in Russian on the uh, document and can't read, <laughs> the stakeholders council will administer the sustainable capitalism that us rubes are too selfish and dumb to produce and maintain for ourselves. So now this stakeholder capitalism is going to be led by a council of stakeholders who I'm comparing to a Soviet, who are the council of decision makers, the wise and omnipotent party apparatus, of course, in the Soviet Union. And they're going to make the decisions for us. Okay, so the stakeholders council, the Soviet, whatever stakeholders Soviet, that's what I'm saying is the model. So I'm basically just saying that what Klaus is proposing in stakeholder capitalism as we heard in the video, as the fusion between the state capitalism and the shareholder capitalism, what Klaus is proposing is a Soviet, a new, a neo-Soviet, a new Soviet model, where he and his cronies in the public-private partnership they're creating, under the brand name stakeholders, are going to make all the decisions for us and make a sustainable capitalist model that's also at the same time a productive socialist model. Are you following my argument? Where sustainable capitalism I go on, is a solution to the so-called riddle of history, stakeholder capitalism is little more than its mechanism of implementation. So what I'm saying is stakeholder capitalism is the vanguard model of Lenin applied to the concept of sustainable capitalism as the new Soviet ideology. It's not old Marxism, it's new Marxism. It's a different Marxism. It's what I call neo-communism instead of communism. It's based off of neo-Marxist theory. It's based off of Herbert Marcuse's updates. It's based off of the consciousness of Paulo Ferreri. It's gone a long way since 1917. So sustainable capitalism, which I'm going to argue is the same as productive socialism, is the solution to the so-called riddle of history. Stakeholder capitalism is its mechanism of implementation. Phrased more historically, where sustainable capitalism is the riddle of history solved and the positive transcendence of private property, riffing from Karl Marx, stakeholder capitalism is the supranationalist Lenin-style vanguard program that will implement it for us, or rather, onto us. That's because we won't be sustainable in the right sense by ourselves. Our elite betters, like Al Gore, are going to have to implement it upon us, for us, for the greater good of all. Though we can only speculate, this might be why Klaus Schwab, alleged father of the stakeholder capitalism model, has a bust of none other than Vladimir Lenin on the bookshelf in his office. Or at least he did in one video. 
In other words, stakeholder capitalism being offered as the vehicle to sustainable capitalism is just further proof that this whole giant socioeconomic Ponzi scheme is going to fail catastrophically. Soviet models don't work. That's why. That's the history of the 20th century. It actually gives away the game that they've tucked away and hidden inside of a new, fancy, Western, techno-futurist box. There's a great meme, a series of memes, set of memes. I think Ryan Staley is the uh, creator of this Uh, I've certainly seen him create a few and share them, and I definitely encouraged him in that. He, um, the meme shows something like CRT, and it's the idea is here's what's on the, on the outside of the box. And it shows, you know, this kind of like, you know, very positive racial situation, like the consultants all happy and like a meeting, DEI meeting, everybody's getting along. It's a very diverse picture like you see on TV. And then in reality, it shows that fat woman with the onesie that was way too tight for standing there by a thing saying all white people are racist. Here's my PayPal. So there's what you get on the outside of the box and what you get on the inside of the box. And what I'm saying is they've created a new outside of the box and called it stakeholder capitalism. But what's inside is basically just a kind of revamped, rewarmed over version of Leninist Marxism that's going to destroy the West. What I go on to say is what we've already realized, however, is that there's another term that could pass equally well for what is meant by, quote, sustainable capitalism, understood as, quote, the riddle of history solved, and that term would be productive socialism, which, if administered long and hard enough, will result in the people undergoing the positive transcendence of private property as human self-estrangement as they come to remember that they are and always were communists in their essential being. That's the heart of Marxism, by the way, is knowing the socialism is a form of Gnostic insight into humanity and the world and ourselves that we are actually truly social beings who have forgotten it because the bourgeoisie acting as a demiurge has erected a system that estranges us from who we actually are by what? Creating and maintaining private property and private property rights and an entire socioeconomic architecture that conditions us to believe that that's just how it is. See, this is the whole thing. Marx believed in two things, which I'm not going to get all into the the hermetic side of Marxism yet. That's a podcast for another day called Praxis, which is activism informed by theory and inversion of Praxis, which is the socialization of the existing society onto the people that live in it. So you go do your activity and if it's theory informed, that's good. And if not, it's bad. You transform society by your activity in society. That's Praxis. And in turn, society socializes and socially conditions you. It was material determinism under Marx. It's social, structural determinism frequently under woke with some elements of both. Um, so society socializes you, conditions you. It brainwashes you to accept the terms of society. Thus, if you don't become a Marxist, you have false consciousness because you've been socialized into believing that this is the way that it is. Just like in Gnosticism, the Demiurge conditions people to believe that they're supposed to be material beings who live in a tormenting world and not truly spiritual beings who can be as gods if they escape that. Same thing. Literally the same thing. But again, like I said, it's a different perspective. What I wanted to bring up, though, is this concept of the inversion of praxis. So Marx's theory in practice 
boils down to the idea that if you do your activism to put Marxist crap into place, whether it's in policy, whether it's in power, whether you force it on people at the barrel of a gun like Mao said, or under absolute tyranny, the, the dictatorship of the proletariat, which is the first ideal democracy, according to Lenin, if you force people into it, the conditions will socialize people to accept it. Man will be transformed, as Marcuse has it, will have a biological foundation for socialism. Then we'll accept and encourage and want socialism. We won't know how to live or function without socialism, just like the broken people who demand it because they've been driven crazy and dysfunctional by it. And then everything will just work because everybody will want the system. So do you get the, you get the picture? The idea is that society is the way that it is because people constructed it to be that way to their own benefit. This is Marxism in a nutshell. And that brainwashes people to accept society the way that it is through what's called the inversion of praxis. So Marx's idea is if we do praxis ourselves, if we do activism and put communism in that position and seize the means of production, not just of economic stuff, but of man and society and the world and history, if we put Marxism into the place of the means of production, that will condition people instead and they'll all not become Marxists. They will remember that they are and always were communists in their essential being. That's the Marxist Gnostic faith. And what I say here is that's what Marx characterized communism as. Communism as he had it is, quote, the true resolution of the strife between existence and essence, between objectification and self-confirmation, between freedom and necessity, between the individual and the species, end quote. The problem is that through the, quote, inversion of praxis, which is how the existing society allegedly brainwashes people into accepting its terms and thus reproducing it, people can't solve the riddle of history. See, the existing socialization is stopping us from solving the riddle of history because we're accepting the terms of the existing society. That's why Horkheimer invented the critical theory, because we're accepting the terms of the existing society and have to break free of them. So people have had socialized into them all the wrong values, or as I put it here, people have had the wrong values, quote, introjected into them. That's Herbert Marcuse's word, introjected into them through the inversion of praxis. And that's how it was phrased in 1969 by the critical Marxist Herbert Marcuse in his infamous essay on liberation. So people need to be freed from those values and have new values. And when chapter two of the essay on liberation is called a new sensibility that needs to be interjected into them instead so that they can establish a true biological foundation for socialism. So you following along here, are you seeing what's how this works? Okay. So this productive socialism is what they pretend to have in China under the CCP. Now, this is a big, important point. Okay. You have to understand that this has been tested out, practiced out in China. That's why you also, I don't have that video here for you, have Klaus Schwab discussing this year that China is the essential model. China has the model that we should all be aspiring to. See, as I say, communist China can be looked at as the test run for this brilliant new global scam. They interject the correct values into the population, not just through the usual old-fashioned methods like dojang, which is struggle, and she now, which is brainwashing, which because they think society's brainwashing you already through the inversion of practice, they're justified in brainwashing you the other way because brainwashing is already happening. They're just doing it in an organized fashion for the greater good, whereas society's doing it for its own, for its 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 uh, producer's own benefit. 
So they don't only in China use traditional old-fashioned methods like struggle sessions and brainwashing, but also through forced compliance with a pervasive social credit system that makes you behave, shall we say, productively and sustainably. See, the social credit system makes you behave and think and act and talk and do things in certain ways. So the idea is that if you're forced to do that, and in fact, if you're self-motivated to do that to make sure your score stays up, then you'll just learn to be that way. You'll be operantly conditioned to put yourself into a socialist mindset with this kind of expanded pro-social, what did, what did, what did, what did he call it? A, a social responsibility model. You're going to brainwash yourself by them creating an incentive structure called a social credit score. And you're going to use, you're going to want to have a good social credit score or else your life is going to suck. You don't necessarily have to have one. It's just, if you don't, your life is going to suck. So you're going to condition yourself to accept the new sensibility, the sustainability, the inclusion, the productive socialism, whatever it is. So they're not just going to struggle people. They definitely do that to break you down. That's your DEI training at work. It happens at schools. They're not just going to brainwash you through like social emotional learning in schools. They're not just going to do those things. They're going to create a pervasive social credit system that makes you behave productively and sustainably and inclusively according to their definitions. And when you behave well, you get a cookie. And when you don't behave well, you're not allowed to buy any cookies because your bank account's frozen until you behave well. And thus you'll brainwash yourself. In education, by the way, where things are going is toward what they call a competency-based model. So maybe you have a math competency, maybe you have a computer competency, maybe you have an LGBTQ ally competency. If you don't have your competencies, well, you're not truly a global citizen. Right now, global citizenship is defined in terms of being um, sustainable development goal compliant for the sustainable and inclusive future and also resilient to your brainwashing. And so if you don't have your competencies, those are going to work like your social credit. You might not be able to get certain jobs. You might not be able to get into certain schools. You might not be able to buy a cookie or have a bank account. If you're not a, if you don't have a perfect score on your personal equality index, which is a parallel of a real thing they do to corporations right now called the corporate equality index, which is put forth by the human rights campaign and companies break their asses to have a 100 perfect score on their corporate equality index because it's in integral to so many things, including their ESG score um, and many other manipulations. If you don't work really hard to bend yourself over backwards to get the competencies and all of the soft skills like relationship skills, things that sound good but are actually defined through these lenses or SDG4 or SDG5, 4 is education for all, 5 is gender equality. Hmm. If you're not working de deliberately toward these things, if you don't have your, your competencies, well, you're not socially creditable. And therefore, maybe you can't buy plane tickets. Maybe you can't travel outside of your 15-minute city zone like they're experimenting with in the UK right now, where they're dividing up cities into 15 minutes away from your place of fifteen places you can get within 15 minutes, I believe, on foot. And you're only supposed to be allowed to leave them so many times a year. And that number might be contoured by your social credit score. It could be contoured down to zero. Look at what they're doing in China. So the idea is that they're going to create a social credit system to where you brainwash yourself because life is not great, but it's not terrible if you do. You don't have any freedom, but you can get access to stuff. And it's sort of like what you're used to. And some of it's technologically super cool, like really convenient, like paying with scanning your hand or something at the thing or your face. So you don't even have to have wallets. You don't have to have money. You don't have cards. You don't have to keep up with anything. 
everything's on blockchain, digital IDs, blah, blah, blah. Everything's great. So everything will be super convenient. But the problem is you have no freedom because if they decide like they just did in China to change the character of your, in this case, it was COVID passports they used as the ultimate arbiter, but it was a social credit score reason that they just turned people's COVID passports red, claimed that they were a COVID risk, shut them out of transport, shut them out of food, shut them out of hotels when they showed up in different cities to try to protest. So now they're stranded um, in winter, uh, unable to, to do anything until they submit. Okay. So the idea though, with the social credit system is that you're going to, they're not going to train you like a dog. You're going to train yourself like a dog through, when I say that meaningfully, I mean, operant conditioning, they're going to give you cookies and or merits and demerits, social credits and social discredits when you participate the way you're supposed to. So they're not just going to brainwash you and struggle session you. They're also going to just give you a pervasive new sensibility program that you have to participate in that the stakeholders decided for you. Why? So that we can have sustainable capitalism, AKA productive socialism. So what I said here is the Marxist doctrine of the inversion of praxis instructs that if you force people to live in practice the new value system, eventually it will determine their character. See, you're structurally determined by the system you live in. So if they seize the means of production in that system and force it upon you, it will condition you into being what you need to be to fit into that system, which just so happens to be either socialist or equitable or sustainable and inclusive. See, you will become socialists by being forced to live as socialists. That was the concept of the dictatorship of the proletariat, which Lenin did, which was a hard model. That was power flows from the barrel of a gun in Mao, which was a hard model that incorporated some softer elements with the brainwashing and the struggle sessions and all of them, all this stuff. And some experience with identity politics and put it, pitting people against each other that way. But now with the social credit system, again, the point is to get you to operantly condition yourself according to a playground that they've built for you. If I put you out on a playground and I said, hey, go do whatever you want, you're still going to condition what you do based on what equipment is on the playground. If there are no swings, you're not going to swing. If there are swings, you very well may swing. Do you follow me? This is the idea. This is how you introject the new sensibility that Marcuse wrote about to create a biological foundation for socialism or equity or sustainability or whatever. You just people you just force people to do it until they don't know another way. In fact, until they don't know how to have another way because it all comes down to dependency on the stakeholder system. Okay, so I went on. I said, this is all easily enough said, but how did it get here? Because this is the big question, right? Okay, so I'm trying to tell tell everybody we're going through a neo-communist revolution. There's a gigantic neo-communist plan, and people are like, uh-uh, the corporations are involved. It's not communism. Communism's dead. Communism ended in 1989. And it's like, no, bro, no. Communism is an evolving philosophy that advances by criticizing its former versions and transforming itself and incorporating more tools. It's a dialectical religion. It's not this like narrowly defined thing that academics who have failed us utterly and nearly destroyed us with their failure have put into this little box so that they can be really neat and clean and sound like they're really smart and have perfect idea land or whatever they have. So the, I want to, I think I've painted the picture for you. I hope you followed it because I'm riffing a lot off of what I wrote and the essays are hard to follow sometimes writing and talking are different. But the question that I always get pressed with, and I think this is very important to understand, is how did we get here? How do we have sustainable capitalism as one brand name or productive socialism as a second brand name that nobody uses? 
How do we have that as neo-communism or what I've called communo-fascism or fascio-communism? How do we have this fusion of a corporatist state and a communist state? How did we mix, in Klaus's words, state capitalism with shareholder capitalism into stakeholder capitalism? And I say the case for my claim that sustainable capitalism and productive socialism are synonyms derives from my reading of the leading critical Marxist theorist of the 1960s, Herbert Marcuse, particularly, in my view, the second and ninth chapters of his magnum opus titled One Dimensional Man and published in 1964. These constitute the conceptual bedrock for the development of sustainable capitalism, and that this concept represents nothing more than a West palatable brand name for what would more honestly be called productive socialism. So I'm saying they're the same thing. We call it sustainable capitalism. We push it through stakeholder capitalism because capitalism sounds good in the West. If we called it productive socialism, nobody would want it because it's socialism. So you have this thing where they've mixed capitalism and socialism together into one thing. They brand it as sustainable capitalism in the West. It would rightly be called productive socialism if we were honest about it. And they sell it to us under program of stakeholder capitalism in Klaus Schwab's world words, which have social responsibility baked in, and combines state capitalism and shareholder capitalism. So what I say about One Dimensional Man is I think this book rephrases the so-called riddle of history while never admitting the slightest doubt that, quote, socialism might not be its solution. Of course, in the religion of Marxism, questioning the completion of history as a truly transcendent capitalism, which resolves the fall of man as a division of labor, is roughly the same thing as asking a Christian to doubt the resurrection which resolves the fall of man as the sin of Adam. Or Eve, if you want to blame the, the women's, I guess. It's not going to happen. They're not going to abandon socialism, abandon socialism as the answer. Why? Because in the Marxist Gnostic religion, socialism is the name of the gnosis. It's knowing that we are a true species being, that we combine the individual and the species, and we live as individuals for the species, all for one another in a commune. That's why. That's the gnosis. That's the Gnostic idea at the heart of it. So they're not going to abandon that. So Marcuse in 1964, which is a long time after 1844, 120 years it sounds like, uh, mathematician and whatnot, isn't abandoning the fundamental premise of the Gnostic cult he signed up for, which is Marxism. He's reframing dialectically the circumstances in which it's trying to be applied. The goal isn't to overcome capitalism, it's to combine with and subvert capitalism to its ends. That's the point of this. And so productive socialism would be the thing he's pointing at, and I'm about to make the case in his book for why that's the target. But at the same time, it should also be called sustainable capitalism. If I had to argue Productive socialism is what Marcuse would call it in chapter two of One Dimensional Man, and sustainable capitalism is what he might call it in chapter nine. Just FYI, I think it's the same program. In One Dimensional Man, which reached and influenced hundreds of thousands, if not millions of leftists in the 1960s and 1970s, I heard at one point that it sold 300,000 copies in its opening year, 1964 into five. That's a lot. That's a lot. Um, cynical theories has done quite well. It's not at that number yet. It's not far from that number, but we're also almost three years into its run. 
These are leftists who went on to become your college professors and your kids' teachers' college professors, among other world-building professionals. And Marcuse wrestles, I said, with a number of mid-century challenges to the sputtering Marxist sophistry, which was just barely chugging along on fumes everywhere outside of East Asia, meaning China mostly, and to a degree Latin America. So you had Cuba, you had Cambodia, you had Vietnam, you had um, China. Soviet Union was going okay in the 60s, obviously, but it's not doing great. We have Khrushchev has already come out and confessed to the sins and crimes of Stalin. Things are getting dark. And everybody's kind of recognizing Marcuse is recognizing it. Freire recognizes it, that Stalin messed up, right? So anyway, prominent among those challenges, and essentially the thesis of the second chapter of One Dimensional Man, is the dialectical relationship between capitalism in the West and socialism in the East and South. What that means is that capitalism and socialism are in some obscure sense the same thing viewed in different, incorrectly opposing lights. See, they're not truly opposites. They're actually the same thing. We're just not seeing how yet from a higher perspective. They are both partial answers to the riddle of history which finds its solution on a higher plane of understanding that synthesizes them both together into one single program. Putting capitalism and socialism in a dialectical relationship, in fact, might have been Marcuse's most significant contribution to leftist thought because it, in a sense, poses two great warring systems as two key insights into solving the so-called riddle of history. That's a big paragraph, by the way. I know that it doesn't sound like it, I said that this might be Marcuse's biggest contribution. I think this is my biggest contribution is recognizing this in Marcuse, that Marcuse reframed socialism and capitalism so that they're now put into a relationship to be mixed together so that you can end up with a liberated socialist program that actually can produce or deliver the goods, but not at an unsustainable level like you have in shareholder capitalism. For Marcuse... Part of the solution exists in what he sees as the chief problem of capitalism. The problem is that capitalism, quote, delivers the goods. It enables the middle class to rise and the worker to have a good life that he enjoys. He has stuff. He isn't hungry or cold. He isn't miserable. Though he's allegedly still exploited, he's conditioned by the goodness of his life, the inversion of praxis. He's conditioned to accept and even enjoy it. And he admits it's absolutely true meaning he, Marcuse. Marcuse admits it's absolutely true that every man's life is a good life. I don't mean every single person. I mean every man is one word, like your average everybody, your Joe Blow, has a good life under advanced capitalism. Marcuse admits that, okay? That makes your average man one-dimensional, though, because he accepts the system, he embraces the system, he has no revolutionary thought against the system, he has no critical dimension to his thought to see how the system is conditioning him to accept the system. And even though he has a good life, he's imprisoned in his good life and sees no way out of it. That's Marcuse's point in One Dimensional Man. So I said that makes him, quote, one-dimensional and completely ruins his revolutionary potential. See, not having a miserable life, which Marx depended on to get the worker to want to revolt, which most workers don't want. I think I saw something the other day that most workers didn't want anything to do with Marxist revolution or philosophy. They wanted lunch. That's a very simple way to put it. Well, all of a sudden, by the 60s, the 50s and 60s, you have capitalism delivering the goods. That's 
Marcuse's words for it. You, in, in Horkheimer's words, it's it's not immiserating the worker. It's allowing him to build a better life. That's happening. And they have this big – Marxists have a big problem with this because it turns them counter-revolutionary, even conservative. They have no desire to overthrow a society that's working for them. But, Mar but Marcuse is saying that makes you one-dimensional. You don't even understand that there's a utopian possibility out there that we're not even able to consider anymore because you're too happy with having a life that's actually good. It sounds preposterous to think that you're being literally imprisoned by the goodness of your own life. But that's exactly the case that Marcuse and the critical theorists were making. Because it's not really good. See, it's consumerist. It's fake. It's selling you culture and your own life and meaning as fake commodified packages that aren't even real. And you don't even know it because you've been so conditioned to accept it that you can't even see it. And that's your false consciousness. That's Marcuse's idea. Okay, so to be a revolutionary, the worker has to be radicalized by making him miserable enough. Traditionally speaking, as Marx saw it, that would happen through the abuses of monopoly capital and exploiting that misery. Advanced capitalism, or as Marcuse called it, had the fairly had fairly effectively put a stop to these abuses, thus flattening man and conditioning him to accept and even love his largely meaningless and static one-dimensional workaday consumerist life. See, again, you're imprisoned by the fact that your life doesn't suck, because if it sucked, you would want to break free of it, and then you could get to the utopia socialism. For Marcuse, the working class was removed from his historical position as a revolutionary base by this evil success of advanced capitalism, so much so that he insisted that a new working class would need to be found through identity politics, specifically racial, sexual, feminist, and more, that would then be led in turn by the more easily programmed college students. Now, of course, Marcuse would be aware that Mao Zedong in China preferentially brainwashed the youth, just like uh, to, to lead his revolution, just like uh, what Marcuse is ultimately recommending through college students. But it was also that he was a professor and therefore knew that he had access to college students and knew that people like him could get access to college students and that colleges could be manipulated to bring people like him in to indoctrinate impressionable young people who are just now confronting that shit in the world costs stuff. It's not all free where they thought it was when their parents were paying for everything before, and woe is me, they're easier to uh, radicalize. It's easy to get them going on racial and sexual issues at the vanguard of the civil rights movements that are happening, whether that's the, the civil rights movement itself, whether that's the gay civil rights movement that's emerging, Stonewalls around this time, whether that's um, feminism. Very easy to radicalize these uh, young people in colleges, and he knew that he could use them, just like Mao used the youth in China, because it works. And that what they can do is then bring theory to these radical groups who are fighting for civil rights and basically poison those groups from the inside. We see that now. The queer agenda, which is these Marcusean radicals, have burst forth and destroyed the gay civil rights movement. CRT, which is derived off of Marcusean identity politics and mar critical Marxism, has burst forth and cannibalized the, the civil rights movement around race. Look at feminism. RIP feminism, RIP, consumed utterly by its own social constructivism. Um, you have to be a man in a dress now in order to be uh, a real woman that counts for anything. Completely destroyed. Do you see the picture? So 
In Marcuse's telling, besides flattening man and thus locking his essential nature as a socialist away from his consciousness, this successful dimension of capitalism creates an impending disaster of excess. He devotes so much time in the book to talking about how excessive it is. Capitalism, he argues, delivers the goods, but it turns people into relentless consumers whose needs multiply as fast as they can be satisfied. In fact, what he argues is that on, once you have your needs satisfied, you just take that stuff for granted, and therefore you have new needs. So it doesn't matter how satisfying your life is. There's no end. You just need more and more and more meaningless needs, and capitalism keeps kind of expanding to satisfy more and more and more meaningless needs until all it's producing is meaningless stuff that conditions you. And you can almost see him tipping into the postmodern Baudrillardian hyperreal where nothing's real. Everything's completely commodified and reproduced and, and taken out of its context as original to the point where the original can't even be found. You can feel that direction going because this is the mood of the 60s. So capitalism delivers the good, but it turns people into relentless consumers whose needs multiply as fast as they can be satisfied. So this is a problem of intrinsic, unsustainable excess. Meanwhile, in his telling, it profiteers off deliberately wasteful practices like planned obsolescence. That's when they make sure that like a piece in your car or your refrigerator is going to break after two years, so you have to buy a new one. So it profiteers off of deliberately wasteful practices like planned obsolescence and the destruction of the limited natural environment. Capitalism works in Marcuse's dialectical view of it, but it works too well and simply isn't sustainable. I don't remember what I wrote. I did. Okay, so never mind. I was going to say, I'm going to have to cover a piece from China, from China that I haven't covered yet. So sorry, I digressed. On the other hand of the great riddle of history, in Marcuse's telling, socialism has the right view of things, the right sensibility but it's a dump. This is what he's wrestling with in chapter two of One Dimensional Man. Capitalism's delivering the goods, but it's going to destroy us all. It makes you hollow. It makes you empty. It turns you into a consumer, turns everything into a commodity. It's excessive. It has planned obsolescence. It's wasteful. It's going to be unsustainable and build itself out until it finally collapses. That's capitalism. But on the other hand, socialism has all the right ideas, but it's a dump. It doesn't work. It can't, in fact, produce. That's what he's actually talking about. So socialism on the riddle of history, where this is a riddle of history, how do we deal with these two things? By 1964, when Herbert Marcuse publishes One Dimensional Man, the riddle of history is socialism has the right idea, but it's a dump. Capitalism has the wrong idea, but it delivers the goods. How do we mix them together? Socialist nations, I said, were undeniable shitholes. In fact, far worse than that because they were brutally totalitarian and abusive on top of it. Marcuse pin, uh, pinned these failures on the abuses of bureaucracy and their tyrants, but those in turn were to him the result of a specific problem that the Marxists of his era didn't know how to solve. That problem is sometimes called the problem of production. I mentioned that earlier. Simply stated, socialist societies cannot produce. They cannot even manage to meet the basic needs of their people. And in their mounting failure to be able to do, uh, sorry, to be able to produce, they become brutal. Socialism for Marcuse has it right, but it doesn't work. If it did work, it would be both productive and sustainable, and the people would be happy. So this is the idea. How do we make socialism sustainable? Because they can't even meet basic needs. Social societies can't produce. The Marxists can't figure out why. They can't brainwash people, they can't force people, they can't, they can't re-educate people into being productive mem members of a socialist society. It just keeps not working. 
and they go through, they're just running through people, literally running through them, killing them, murdering them, sending them off to Siberia, sending them off to the mud fields of China, whatever it happens to be. Um, they don't know how to solve this problem. The other problem actually is another problem, which is the problem of distribution. This is what Milton Friedman, I think, or was it von Hayek or was it von Mises? I can't remember. One of these famous, you know, anti-communist uh, economists, I think it was actually von, von Mises, now that I think about it, uh, put forth uh, that, that the reason that one of the reasons that socialism fails is because market economies don't just exchange goods and services, they exchange information about supply demand. Okay. So the question of who does, who, how do we distribute our goods and services is actually also being answered by the fact of people buying and selling these things and working to supply them. And so there's information exchange also. And so when you go into a command economy, that's say centrally planned in Moscow or in Beijing, it doesn't have that information sharply enough to be able to do the distribution. The problem is, is that AI, it might be smart enough actually to overcome the problem of distribution. It might be predictive enough. And the the stakeholder capitalism uh, tyrants of today kind of are banking on that. They think that the problem of distribution, which already seen things aren't working or supply chains suck under their management, um, they think that the problem of distribution can be solved through AI predicting. They look at things like Walmart being able to predict how many boxes of strawberry Pop-Tarts are needed if the weather takes a particular turn and they put it on the truck automatically and whatever. They think that they can look at these kind of supercomputer number crunching statistical patterns and produce the distribution outside of having to actually pay attention to supply and demand, uh, except that supply and demand kind of provide a feedback into the supercomputer crunching the numbers. But anyway, there's a classic argument about the problem of distribution. This is socialism can't actually overcome that problem because the information exchange isn't happening correctly, but the current regime believes that AI solves that problem. And they might actually be right about that. The problem of production, on the other hand, they're banking on automation to solve because I don't think they're under any illusion at this point that people are actually going to do the work, that they can be forced to do a bunch of work for free, as the old saying goes, pointless work for pointless pay, or we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us as characteristic of these regimes. Okay, so the riddle of history for Marcuse's time in the 60s is socialism has the right idea, but it can't deliver the goods. Capitalism delivers the goods, but it's not sustainable. What do? And it's also not socialism. What do? Okay, so this is the problem, the riddle of history, and Marcuse's contribution is to put these in dialectical relationship with one another to try to solve it. So that riddle of history I went on, which I will insist defined Marxist leftism, which is a redundancy, uh, in the tumultuous 1960s and stagnating 1970s was the framing in which stakeholder capitalism and the notion of a, quote, sustainable and inclusive future first emerged. I believe. The Soviet Union, for all its might, was toast, or on its way to toast. It still existed. It still was strong. And the Cold War was serious. Don't get me wrong. But it had already kind of... I think the writing was already going to be on the wall at that point. Um, the Soviet Union, for all its might, was, we'll say, destined to be toast. And so the model wasn't tested there. That's my point. They tested the new model, the combination in China. They didn't go to an advanced capitalist nation like the United States or Britain. They didn't go to an advanced socialist nation like 
the Soviet Union, which is advanced dilapidation, they went to kind of green space. They went to the newly communist, but um, not really done anything yet, China. And it just so happened that Mao, by the time we get to like, what, 76 is when Mao died, got out of the way. The old guard dictator model kind of got out of the way. So it developed, I said, the model was first tested in China and it developed not under Mao Zedong, though there were important meetings between leaders like him and Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, uh, perhaps to this particular theme, if you actually go read the proceedings of those meetings, but it wasn't under Mao. It was under his successor, Deng Xiaoping who rose to chairman of the CCP within a couple of politically tumultuous years following Mao's death in September of 1976. The productive socialism experiment, I explain, as it might now be called, was open, was open, uh, I'm skipping a word and it's not clear. Let me start that paragraph again. The productive socialism experiment, as it might be called, was to open up restricted markets within China and Chinese industry and open them to Western markets. Quote, I don't care. This is such an important quote. You must get this in your head. Quote, I don't care if the cat is black or white so long as it catches mice. Deng famously remarked. So why not experiment with a markets-driven solution to the problem of production? Meanwhile, you have these neoliberal shitheads like Kissinger going over there thinking we're going to get rich as shit by moving production to a to a dirt poor autocracy. We're going to put American manufacturing or world manufacturing in China to exploit the fact of how cheap labor is there and how cheap it's going to be and the fact that it's under a command economy and can therefore do crazy things to, to build factories and things that nowhere else can do. We're going to take advantage of that. These brilliant neoliberal Hegelian shitheads they're going to move all of our production over there, and then we're going to have this market relationship. And the claim is that they believe that this was going to bring China into capitalism and defeat communist or red China. But of course, as Vivek Ramaswamy has very um, eloquently pointed out, that's not what happened. China built what they you might call the Great Firewall to their market. And is if you want to participate in the Chinese market with all their huge amount of consumers that have emerged in, since the 1990s, really... Uh, like the NBA definitely does, like Disney definitely does, you're going to roll the red carpet for the CCP. You're also going to be anti-West because that's what the CCP wants. So you're going to crap on your own country and you're going to elevate China and turn a blind eye to all of its excuses. So it actually backfired. Whether that was the original plan or not, I couldn't tell you. I'm not going to speculate, but it was a neoliberal scam in the first, in any case, but Deng Xiaoping was no fool and he knew how to take advantage of this because he didn't care if the cat was black or white as long as it catches mice. What did he mean by that? What he meant is as long as China becomes powerful and succeeds, I don't care how we do it. I don't care if we use socialism. I don't have to cling to hard Marxist theory like Mao, but I also don't care if we use capitalism. So let's do some of both. And in some sense, it worked. China was rapidly enriched and went from being a broken, backwards, extremely populous nation with an economy roughly the size of Italy's to a global financial superpower in just a few decades. Huge consumer base, a center of financial gravity that's so heavy that it can throw the world around. Also the gigantic manufacturing base because one of the blessings of socialism is that you can make people work for very little money. They had, it seemed, as I said, cracked the code on productive socialism. The trick 
that is the words it seemed, was to open up quasi-capitalist markets like little controlled terrariums inside of the socialist architecture of the command-driven communist state. There's your state capitalism that Klaus was talking about. The trick in reality was probably little more than turning that humongous, impoverished, and easily exploitable population base into a gigantic manufacturing base for Western consumer goods. There's your neoliberal scam, thank you Henry Kissinger, which is also only good so long as it lasts. And I speculate here that the check might be coming due on this now for what it's worth. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But here's what I'm saying. They think that they cracked the code on productive socialism, but they didn't. They have gigantic reservoirs of capitalist-generated or market-generated wealth from Western nations dumping in and propping this whole thing up. That's why it seems to work. Their own markets internally are a catastrophe. Look at their housing market. If you know what's actually gone on with their housing market and how it's fluctuating and threatening to crash and kind of crashing and getting papered over, the thing is in shambles internally because it's super fake, but it has a unbelievable river of market-generated Western money flowing into it. Meanwhile, they're doing massive exploitation of places like Africa, the Caribbean, uh, other parts of the world to extract, roughly colonize and steal their natural resources to their own wealth. Um, so it doesn't really work, but it looks like it works because there is a gigantic wealth base, or two of them really, that are being able to be dumped into that economy, which is socialist and therefore not actually productive. It's not productive socialism is my point. But the idea, the thinking, if the model could work in China, then why not in the West? And I actually just told you why. It only works when there's a gigantic reservoir of riches of one form or another being dumped into it from the outside. It doesn't work otherwise. You can't have the whole globe on this Chinese program. It has to be dumped, it has to have wealth being dumped into it from the American market, the European market, the British market to buy those manufactured goods. It has to have wealth pouring into it through the exploitative practices that they have to gather natural resources. Only that way can it work. If everybody's doing it, it's not going to work. It's kind of like OnlyFans. OnlyFans works great. You can pay these chicks to take off their pants or whatever, unless everybody starts doing it, and then it's, nobody makes any money to pay anybody to take anybody's pants off. Nobody wants just naked pictures because they're hungry. That's an actual argument for why prostitution doesn't work as a universal, by the way. But anyway, the idea is that if the model... Uh, prostitution, by the way, is a, as gross as it is, is a luxury good by necessity. Kind of like academia. If the model could work in China, this is the logic, why not in the West? And thus, in some sense, everywhere. See, they think they crack, they've tricked themselves. They think they cracked the code to productive socialism, but of course they haven't. The West obviously would naturally fall behind the rising command economy behemoth in the East if it doesn't transform itself as well, right? That's the logic. That's the thought. We'll transform China. We'll get it working. This is amazing. Oh my God, look how much it's grown. And now, which really is just a gigantic wealth transfer from the West into China, P.S., and a gigantic now off of that wealth mineral grab by China, P.S., but they think that it, or they convince themselves, I guess, that it works. So now the West, and this is what you hear people like Joe Biden say, is that if China, if we're going to keep up with China, we've got to compete. We've got to change to be like them. Or as Klaus Schwab said, 
you know, state capitalism has certain advantages. Yeah, it has certain advantages. It's a command economy. It gets very fast. It can be very flexible in terms of what it wants to do. But it also only works as a parasite on a gigantic reservoir of wealth from somewhere else. That's the problem. And what I said is that makes for one hell of a sales pitch, one that many of our Western elites seem to have bought hook, line, and sinker. We have to become like China in order to beat China. That's the, that's the message. So to get productive socialism in the West, especially in the United States, where socialism is largely anathema, what changes would be needed here? Well, first, we have to have our competitor, right? But that's the one thing, as I was just explaining. But secondly, Herbert Marcuse told us, you're definitely going to need a radicalized youth that believes it can't even live without socialism. Remember that biological foundation for socialism? I said it actually seems more like psychology. It's like that you can't function in the world unless it's that way because it's at the level of your vital needs, but somehow distinct from biology. What would that mean? It means you can't function psychologically in the world if it's not catering to you. So Herbert Marcuse told us what we need in the United States to transform into that system. We need first the enemy over there, but that's not what Marcuse said. He said, you'll need a radicalized youth that it believes it cannot even live without his liberated socialism. And getting one of those, he also told us, is as simple a matter, more or less, as getting hold of the education system through which you can disrupt family, faith, and national identity. They also took the news media and entertainment industries and did the same thing with them. More would be needed, though, too. A right understanding of capitalism, and that's the key point. The basis of the West that synthetically moves it toward productive socialism will also be needed. In other words, how do we curb our excesses? How do we, in Marcuse's words, become happy and comfortable with less? Well, we have to be sustainable. We need to recycle, right? Again, that's a circular economy. Look at the symbol. Again, to believe Herbert Marcuse on the issue, the problem with Western capitalism wasn't that it couldn't produce. It's that it produces too much. It's unsustainable. The problem of advanced capitalism isn't production and the satisfactions, uh, satisfaction of needs, argues Marcuse. It's overproduction and thus the insatiable production of newer and newer false needs. Quote, in the contemporary era, the conquest of scarcity is still confined to small areas of advanced industrial society. Their prosperity covers up the inferno outside sorry, inside and outside of their borders. It also spreads a repressive productivity and, quote, false needs, he tells us. Okay, so what is Marcuse saying there? Let me make it real clear. He said this. Scarcity has been conquered in the West because it's an exploitative practice that's ripping everything off. Iron law of oak projection on China here never misses. And so you get to ignore it here. And you get to ignore the damage and the destruction that it's doing, the inferno that's going to consume everything. We're consuming the rest of the world. We're consuming our own part of the world. Meanwhile, we're producing false needs, not just repressive productivity, but also false needs, he tells us. So what's to be done about these, quote, false needs generated by the excessive successes of advanced capitalism, says Era Marcuse, quote, the process always replaces one system of preconditioning by another. The optimal goal is the replacement of false needs by true ones. Doesn't that sound Gnostic? The abandonment of repressive satisfaction. So you see, remember, you being satisfied in your life represses you because you're not living a liberated life. You accept your conditioning, you accept your Corvette, you accept your house, you accept your comfortable life, and you don't think of better possibilities, and you're actually consuming commodified forms of life and actually not living life at all. 
the replacement of false needs by true ones is necessary. And to get there, you need to abandon repressive satisfaction. You're repressing yourself by satisfying yourself with a life that you actually like. So, of course, this is me, not Marcuse. So, of course, consciousness, the Marxist Gnostic counterfeit of Christian discernment and Greek wisdom, is needed to distinguish the two true needs versus false needs. They're Gnostics. They know the true needs, not just theirs, yours. Yours. They know your true needs, and they know that when you're happy with your Corvette, or happy with your street tacos, or happy with your 48,406 brands of IPA and no, uh, say, stouts at the grocery store, that when you're happy with that life, those needs were false. You didn't need any of that in the first place. These are just examples of things you've convinced yourself you need that you don't need that are repressive satisfaction holding you down making your life miserable so you can get on the, the, the play the rat race to earn money to spend money to get stuff you didn't want and don't really need that's actually kind of junk in the first place those are false needs but you don't know that you're stupid in buying that stuff because the economy is stupid and evil and doesn't care and just wants to make money off of you and they're commodifying your life and selling it back to you in order to do it So they have consciousness of which needs for you, not for them, for you are true and false needs because they're better than you and you're an idiot. You're not a Gnostic. You don't have true mind. They have an awakened conscious mind. You are conditioned by your society to work like a hamster and a, and a, and a dog, uh, a literally like a, like a Pavlov's conditioned, operantly conditioned dog to continue the capitalist machine and make yourself miserable in the guise of feeling happy all the time and satisfied all the time. So your satisfaction is preventing you from being satisfied. So true needs, I said, are the actual basic needs of life and not more. He actually explains that, which a government of productive socialism should be able to provide, thus liberating man from needing to provide them for himself. False needs, on the other hand, can be identified through critical consciousness. Mm-hmm. See, critical consciousness is what they call it when you adopt the critical Marxist Gnosticism. You have a critical consciousness. You understand how the demiurgic society conditions you into false consciousness that serves its interests and not yours. That's the idea. I'm really going to convince all of you people that this is Gnosticism and I don't even have to try. It's so easy once you understand what it is. It's so easy. Then I'm out of a job because actually this is the bottom. There is no more further explanation. There's no more digging. There's no more need to dig. Once you understand this, you understand everything. Now, let me tell you about this idea. The government of productive socialism should provide all of your basic needs of life. I've been to China. I've seen how that works. Do you want to live three people in a room that's about 10 feet by 12 feet with some cots in it and you get your literal like aluminum pot of rice and maybe a little bit of sauce? And after you eat your pot of rice and your sauce, you can take your little bucket of water and you can wash your pot out in the water. And then you can use the water to kind of dump on your head and pretend to bathe. And then you can put on your your uniform, which is like a security guard uniform or something, and pretend to work all day at a place that nobody visits because nobody goes anywhere in China. That's what that looks like. I hope you enjoy it. And they'll pay you. They'll pay you for this. I mean, you only work 28 days on one day off, 12-hour days, and those kind of conditions. Besides your food, they, they might pay you, you know, tens of yuan a day, which works out to not even tens of dollars or just barely tens of dollars a day for your 28 days in a row of work. But the government's providing all of your basic needs of life and not more. 
But false needs can be identified through critical consciousness. What do we have Marcuse tell us? He says, we may distinguish, this is a quote, we may distinguish both true and false needs. Quote, false are those which are superimposed upon the individual by particular social interests in his repression. The needs which perpetuate excuse me, the needs which perpetuate toil, aggressiveness, misery, and injustice. Their satisfaction might be the most gratifying to the individual. See, you might be super gratified by what you're what you have and what you do. But this happiness is not a condition which has to be maintained and protected if it serves to arrest the development of the ability, his own and others, to recognize the disease of the whole and grasp the chances of curing the disease, which is capitalism. The result then is euphoria in unhappiness. Listen to this shithead. The result then is euphoria in unhappiness. Most of the prevailing needs to relax, to have fun, to behave and consume in accordance with the advertisements, to love and hate what others love and hate, belong to this category of false needs. And that's the end of that quote. So, so much for relaxing and having fun in the socialist utopia, comrades. You thought you were going to go to the beach and do some art. No, that'd be relaxing and having fun. No, no, no. So much for, you know, maybe you want to get on Twitter and you want to argue about stuff. You want to do your politics. You want to do your stuff. Everybody, lots, lots of people have fun doing that. No, 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 no. That's loving what, to love and hate what others love and hate. That's false needs. But that's not all though. Quote, liberation of energy from the performances required to sustain destructive property, advises Marcuse in the ninth chapter of One Dimensional Man, quote, means decreasing the high standards of servitude, high standards of living, in order to enable the individuals to develop that rationality which may render possible a pacified existence. It also presupposes reduction in the future population, he points out. In the next sentence, this was written in 1964 when the population was roughly half of what it is today. But let's not digress into the uncomfortably obvious. To achieve the parallel of productive socialism in the West, capitalism would have to be modified to free up the, quote, energy required to sustain destructive prosperity. We have to change capitalism to be sustainable. And the way that we're going to do that is to free up, quote, the energy required to sustain destructive prosperity. Prosperity, destructive prosperity, end quote. And the denizens of Western capitalistic nations would have to accept generally a lower standard of living and a smaller population. In other words, capitalism would have to be made sustainable and inclusive. So we're back to the socialist shitholes, but in the new sustainable ones, you'll be happy, not merely comfortable, relaxed, and euphoric. I believe, quote, sustainable and inclusive capitalism is little more than the capitalist side solution to this false riddle of history as posed in 1964 by Herbert Marcuse, and that it thinks it knows, or rather believes, itself to be the solution. Now, knows here should be written with a G, for gnosis, because it's Gnostic. They think this is what the end of history is supposed to look like, sustainable and inclusive stakeholder capitalism with them in charge. The, quote, productive socialism of China under the hybrid system currently run by the CCP is the socialist side solution to the same. So let me summarize that for you more simply. CCP, socialist version, WEF, World Economic Forum, I should say, and United Nations, capitalist version, China, socialist version, CCP, UN, World Economic Forum, cap, quote, stakeholder capitalist 
dispersion. So the productive socialism of China under this hybrid system currently run by the CCP is a socialist side solution to the same problem. And in fact, these two are not significantly different in any noteworthy way. These two, sustainable capitalism and productive socialism, are the two great systems dialectically reframed as part of one greater whole, the impending shithole world of the New World Order. Thus, in China, the communism is on the outside, and the fascistic market structure is contained within to produce, quote, productive socialism, which, again, let me remind you, is only operant because it's draining the wealth as a parasite out of the rest of the world in two different ways, economically through trade uh, and, and uh, um, I guess, production and manufacturing production and through the uh, colonization and theft of natural resources. And in the West, perhaps mostly due to some combination of marketing constraints and dialectical wizardry, the fascistic, quote, public-private partnership is on the outside with the, quote, equitable and inclusive redistribution scheme hidden within. We all should know at this point that equity is just a branding, a rebranding and a cultural update of socialism. And inclusion is roughly the same thing. We could get into it, but it's a different. We don't need to do that right now. So equitable and inclusive means, means socialist. So what you're going to have is the capitalist public-private partnership entity on the outside. The stakeholder capitalism, which pretends to be capitalist because it's run through corporations, is on the outside, even though it's doing handshake, revolving door, corrupt, illegal dealings with the government constantly. So the government can do what it can do and be powerful, but it can also get the corporations to do what it cannot do and be more powerful. And the corporations can use the government to create conditions by which it can avoid being prosecuted for monopoly or busted up, but also that it can the, it can get the government to rig the system itself so that they can continue to profit and profit more and box out competitors. That's what's going on. In China, I'll just read the sentence without all the riffing. In China, the communism is on the outside and the fascistic market structure, structure is contained within to produce productive socialism. And in the West, perhaps mostly due to some combination of marketing constraints and dialectical wizardry, the fascistic public-private partnership is on the outside with the equitable and inclusive redistribution scheme hidden within. These are the things in the past that I called communo-fascism in China and fascio-communism at the World Economic Forum. This, though, is a distinction without much difference. Both are in a position for ultimate synthesis, though. This is very important. Not only are they not actually that different, they are dialectical opposites. Fascism on the outside versus fascism on the inside. Communism on the outside versus communism on the inside. Upside down of one another. That puts them both in a position for ultimate synthesis into the great tyranny of the 21st century. In a bizarre twist of ironic inversion, the Chinese model will be the nationalistic one because China cares about Chinese interests. The West will not be allowed to be so lucky. It's going to have to be rampantly internationalist. Karl Marx, going back to that guy, Karl Marx said of the true sort of communism that it is, quote, the riddle of history solved and it knows itself to be the solution. And this is characterized by, quote, the positive transcendence of private property as human self-estrangement and therefore as the real appropriation of the human essence by and for man. Communism, therefore, as the complete return of man to himself as a social, that is, human being. Sustainable capitalism phrases this more plainly. You will own nothing and you will be happy. Marx said about it 
that it, quote, as a fully developed naturalism equals humanism, and as a fully developed humanism equals naturalism. It is the genuine resolution of the conflict between man and nature and between man and man, end quote. The sustainable capitalists explain that it's environmentally and socially responsible, that it's sustainable and inclusive. Inclusion as a communist ideal is obvious, of course, but what about environmental sustainability? Turns out we don't even have to rely just on Marcuse's warnings. Karl Marx explained this too, though a little bit more abstrusely. This is a slightly longer quote from Marx from EPM, Economic Philosophic Manuscript. Just as plants, animals, stone, air, light, etc., constitute theoretically a part of human consciousness, partly as objects of natural science, partly as objects of art. His spiritual inorganic nature, spiritual nourishment, which he must first prepare to make palatable and digestible. So also in the realm of practice, they constitute a part of human life and human activity. Physically, man lives only on these products of nature, whether they appear in the form of food, heating, clothing, a dwelling, etc., the universality of man appears in practice precisely in the universality which makes all nature his inorganic body. All of nature is man's inorganic body. Both inasmuch as nature is one, his direct means of life, and two, the material, the object, and the instrument of his life activity. In other words, it's how we sustain ourselves and it's what we do our work upon. Nan, sorry, nature is man's inorganic body. Nature that is insofar as it, it is not it sorry, nature that is insofar as it is not itself human body. Man lives on nature. Means that that nature is his body, which he must remain in continuous interchange. Uh, sorry, with which he must remain in continuous interchange if he is not to die. That man's physical and spiritual life is linked to nature means simply that nature is linked to itself, for man is a part of nature. See, so what he's saying is that man and nature are in an inextricable dialectical relationship with one another. So he says, in estranging from man one nature and to himself, that's what private property does, his own active functions, his life activity, estranged labor estranges the species from man. It changes for him the life of the species into the means of an individual life. Oh, when man has, 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 has private property and he sees himself as his own thing, he's not a communist anymore. But that means he's claiming that he can own some of nature, right? So you're, you're estranging what makes man truly man by letting him own pieces of nature and do with it as he will instead of being a steward for all of it because it's his inorganic body. So it changes for him the life of the species into the means of an individual life. First, it estranges the life of the species and individual life. And secondly, it makes individual life in its abstract form the purpose of life of the species, likewise in its abstract and estranged form. So we, as a collective, this is no longer Carl. This is Jim. James. What do you want to call me? We, as a collective, are nature, apparently. We, as individuals, sunder ourselves from nature, both as nature itself and the necessary window into our true human natures as communists through the development of private property. Sustainable capitalism managed by Klaus Schwab's stakeholder Soviet, aka stakeholder capitalism, allows the properly conscious to remedy this primordial Marxist evil and knows itself to be the solution. So in other words, 
We have to be environmentally sustainable and conscious or else we destroy what makes us able to live and that upon which we work. So the solution to his, the riddle of history that would know itself to be the solution can't just be redistributive, equitable, and inclusive. It must also be sustainable and environmentally conscious. It's the fulfillment of what Karl Marx said fully characterizes true communism. And so I, end, I continue to the end of the essay by saying, so I think I've made my case. Karl Marx instructed in 1844 that the true communism is the self-conscious solution to the riddle of history. And Herbert Marcuse, 120 years later, framed the riddle of history for the stage of advanced capitalism and faltering socialism to be how to synthesize them into a single functional system. While productive socialism is not a term in common use, its Western brand name, sustainable capitalism, is. These are not different, however. They're both approximately the same new iteration of communism, that is a neo-communism based on Marcusean neo-Marxism instead of on Marxian Marxism. To kind of close out my last paragraph, I say this whole thing is a scam. Do you understand me? Let me repeat that part. This whole thing is a scam, and it will do incalculable damage if we allow it. We don't have to allow it, though. We have a choice. We can understand what we're dealing with beneath the jargon and slick branding, and we can say no. Marcuse said that overcoming the tyranny of the system he hated required what he called a great refusal, quote, the protest against that which is. Hey, that's a Gnostic phrase, isn't it? And to that much I say yes. Not his great refusal. We're not going to protest against that which is. We're going to protest against that which is being foisted upon us. We can refuse this scam, whether we call it sustainable capitalism or productive socialism, which I remind you is an oxymoron. And we can get back to living history as it unfolds instead of falling on our faces by thinking it is a riddle we can or should attempt to solve. So I'm happy and Glad to have shared this essay with you, these ideas with you, and to have flushed them out. I honestly think this is one of the key pieces that people don't understand to understand what's happening with the world today, is that capitalism, as it was understood under so-called advanced capitalism in the 60s and 70s, and socialism were fused together. This was piloted in China, tested in China, believed to work in China because of the ability to dump Western money and global resources into this system that cannot produce and cannot sustain itself. I go back to the beginning of the podcast to repeat Klaus Schwab has said the exact same thing. Klaus Schwab, here we are three months after I published this essay, Klaus Schwab admits, confesses, brags, whatever you want to call it, that what I said was correct. That what we have to understand is that state capitalism or socialism, as it were, productive, we'll call it socialism, is one model that has certain advantages. And on the other hand, we have shareholder capitalism, which has certain advantages like massive production capacity, but certain disadvantages like excessiveness and unsustainability. And that they can be combined into a new model called stakeholder capitalism, which will be sustainable and inclusive and, in his words, socially responsible but also environmentally responsible, of course. That's what I want to convey. What we're dealing with is ultimately, you can call it fascist if you want, you can call it Nazi if you want. I won't even hesitate on that. There are reasons. That's a different podcast. But what we're dealing with has a strongly Marxist engine, very powerful, 
Marxist engine, but it's a fusion of these two things that seem incompatible. And I'm trying to tell people that 50 years ago, more than 50 years ago, 1964, almost 60 years ago, these the, the groundwork to fuse these two concepts was laid by Marxist theorists who were completely revamping in the face of their failures, that this has now, so almost 60 years later, come to fruit, and that Klaus Schwab is sitting there on a stage in Davos, or actually on a set, I guess, a soundstage or whatever, talking to a journalist where we began, saying that he has solved the riddle of history, and it's the combination of state capitalism, which I say is productive socialism, and stakeholder, or sorry, shareholder capitalism, which we just call um, capitalism, into what he's calling stakeholder capitalism, which stands for the sustainable development agenda or sustainable capitalism. So I am motivated by Klaus Schwab to have shared this with you, and I hope it helps you understand that what we're dealing with is a neo-communist revolution that is attempted to be throughout the West. It is intentionally advantaging China, advantaging China because we need uh, it needs to grow that base to make the productive socialism look like it works so that we're going to want to emulate the model. That's all a farce. These are very big, very key ideas. But we also, last word, have a choice. We do not have to accept this. We do not have to have these unelected stakeholders making our decisions for us. Businesses do not need that. They need help. We can be as mad at we, as we want at Disney. We can be as mad as we want at Coca-Cola or whatever other corporation. Maybe they deserve it. And maybe they genuinely deserve it, which is that they are committed to the cause but many of them are trapped by the ESG model that's being run by the World Economic Forum to implement the stakeholder capitalism because the stakeholders decide what counts as ESG, environmental social governance scoring to keep everybody in line and on the program so we can interject the values. This guidance to rescue our corporations, our institutions, our, in, our, our universities, our schools from this legislation to help us do it, the awareness that we need such things people standing up, whether it's Ron DeSantis, whether it's Trump, I don't care, I don't, whether it's anybody, whoever runs for president next, uh, hopefully is successful, don't count those chickens before they're hatched. Um, we need to fight this with all we can. We don't have to go this way, but we're not going to fight it the way we need to fight it until we recognize that it is a neo-communist revolution with a neo-Soviet model called stakeholder capitalism driving it. And that Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum are kind of a functional hub for making that work, which cannot be ignored. We cannot downplay their influence or their importance. It doesn't matter if there are puppet masters behind the scenes. It doesn't matter if he's a front man. It doesn't matter any of that. His organization, the World Economic Forum, is the networking hub in which it is all accomplished. We don't have to do any of it. We can refuse it.